where we are in Danbury, Connecticut, up till about 16,000 years ago for the previous tens of thousands of years, I'm not sure how many, um, there was a mile thick layer of ice right here. Hmm. And that ice melted as the climate naturally through these cycles in the geophysics of the earth called Milankovitch cycles, um, all kicked in and caused that warming. Now, that warming then not only melted the ice, but it hit us just at the right time when we were socially and intellectually able to do things like domesticate plants and animals, which allowed for human civilization to sprout up. And here we are. Welcome to WCSU 411, a podcast about interesting people and achievements at Western Connecticut State University. I'm Paul Steinmetz, and today we are recording on the Midtown campus in the basement of Whitehall with Dr. Mitch Wagner, a professor of biology at Westcon. Dr. Wagner earned his PhD in soil ecology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, which is a long way from where he grew up in Missouri. He joined Westcon in 1996, and he's about to become a grandpa. Dr. Wagner does research on invasive species in Candlewood Lake. He keeps track of the plants and animals on the university's nature preserve on the West Side campus, and he can tell you what's living in the stone wall on your property. Lately, he has concentrated on climate change and has given a number of talks around the region. He believes climate change is real and potentially dangerous, and he advocates for doing something about it. So, Dr. Wagner, there's been a lot of conversation and uh, passion about climate change, especially over the last couple of years. So my first question is, are you some kind of nut? I wish I was. It, I, nothing would make me happier than to, for someone to come along and prove that climate change isn't real or not due to us. Um, that would make life a lot more certain going forward. It would make the life of my uh, little grandson, who's uh, gonna not yet in the world, but will be in a couple of months, make his life a lot more certain. And I, you know, as a grandfather, I could never want more than that. Mm -hmm. So I, I would love it if someone could come up and prove that climate change isn't real. The truth of it is, though, it's not just one bit of information that leads us to suggest suggest to us that there is, you know, really a warming of the climate and humans are involved. There's all sorts of them. There are independent lines of evidence having to do with the atmosphere, having to do with the ice, having to do with the oceans, having to do with the distribution of life on Earth all of which are changing in a way consistent with and suggesting very strongly that the climate is warming and that it is something that we're mostly responsible for. If there was just one line of evidence, it would be easy enough to poo-poo it and said, okay, well, maybe we just messed this up. And, but we have 14, 15, 16, 20 lines of evidence all collected independently, different kinds of science, different kinds of scientists. Some of the scientists are rivals and they're not particularly, don't really like each other necessarily, being humans. And yet, 
they all point in the same direction. That's something the scientists call consilience, and it leads for a very, very strong case. I would love for there to be someone come up with a big paper that blows it all away, but the chances are very slim. Mm-hmm. Actually, I read today that ExxonMobil yeah. scientists, uh, <laughs> yeah. their own research, so that climate change was real and threatening. Going back to the 70s. Yeah, I have that paper, by the way, if you'd like to read it or if anyone else would. I, in fact, it just came out today, and I get up early. I have a dog that gets me up early. So one of the first things I do is look for new climate change papers, and this was out there. Um, basically, what it's about, I haven't read it thoroughly, but I've read the abstract, is that um, a whole bunch of data, a whole bunch of studies were done going back to the 70s, on climate change. Some of them were done by the oil companies. Exxon, Mobil were separate companies at the time, and Shell did their own, and, and a number of them, by their own scientists, and they basically scared the scientists. And they wrote these things up, and then the big bosses at the top, who were more concerned about the bottom line, apparently buried them. So there's that data, there's data by you know, 50 years worth of scientists and all that. And uh, it's pretty clear now that from that paper written by Naomi Oraseckis and one of her postdocs that we've been deceived by some of these companies. They are covering, covering up the data that they knew well was happening. And I think it'll be subject to some legal action, what I understand. Mm-hmm. So is, can you, if it's sum upable, can you say, uh, look, we've been pouring carbon into the atmosphere for 200 years mm-hmm. or 150, and now it's caught up with us. The atmosphere's warmed, everything, the ice is melting, and uh, that's job. what climate change is. Yeah, good job. That, you've got the basics. Well, starting with the Industrial Revolution, which started really in the Midlands of Britain, um, back in the around 1800, intimately associated with cotton because so many of those industries, those big mills were um, cloth mills and cotton was very sought after as we know because we're both wearing it I think today. It's comfy and more comfy than, than, oil, than um, flax and, and um, and wool are so there's a big demand for cotton and where does the cut where was the cotton grown at that time in the american south and so the demand for cotton was fueled by three things one was the fact that um some genius came up with cotton gin eli whitney came up with a mechanism for processing cotton separating the fibers from the seeds at a rapid rate so suddenly a lot of cotton could be processed. At the same time, the steam engine was invented, which allowed the powering of big machines to spin the cotton and turn and weave it into cloth much faster than hand loomers could. It's interesting to note that the people in Midlands, um, Midlands England who were doing that by hand were not very happy with industrialization and they got all up, upset. And they, they conjured up this a character called King Ludd, who was the symbol of 
of their dis desire to eliminate industrialization of their of their uh, industry. And so the people who followed King Lud were the Luddites, a term which we used in the 70s and 80s in this country to describe someone who continued to use a typewriter instead of a word processor and things like that. So someone who held on to old technology. Well, <clears throat> with the combination of uh, the ability to produce more cotton more quickly into into uh, into cloth and the availability of cotton largely from the American South, the industry just boomed. And at first, the steam engines were fueled by wood, and then some genius came realized that this black rock found so abundantly in Wales is uh, would burn quite nicely. Thank you. And so that was coal. And uh, the first industrial revolution was fueled by coal. And of course, coal is the swamp plants of the Carboniferous period, about 300 million years old, that has been fossilized and smashed and heated by geological processes and turned into this, it's, a, it's considered a rock, this black stuff that burns. Well, that coal, when you take it out of the ground, and you burn it, you're taking carbon, which has been out of the carbon cycle for 300 million years and introducing it into the atmosphere. And what that does is <clears throat> increases the total amount of carbon in the carbon cycle. That's our issue. And so the more of that stuff accumulates in the atmosphere and much of it ends up in the oceans being... Um, absorbed by that cold water that likes to absorb gases, changing the pH of the ocean water, uh, making it more difficult for the sea creatures to absorb calcium, so they're all bummed out. And that carbon dioxide is something we call a greenhouse gas, which is a, a gas that absorbs ultra or infrared light. The sunlight that hits the the atmosphere is coming in from the sun at a broad range of spectra and it shines through and some of it's absorbed, much of it reaches the surface. It's absorbed by the oceans, it's absorbed by the land mass, it's absorbed by the ice um, to some degree. And then that heat is re-radiated back up into the atmosphere, not as the broad spectrum, but as heat. <laughs> and that heat then is absorbed by certain gases. Um, Water vapor is a weak greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide is a stronger one. Methane is even stronger. One, you know, some of the strongest ones are gases that don't occur in nature outside the industrial processes, the CFCs, the freons, and things like that. Those are hellaciously strong greenhouse gases that didn't exist prior to people inventing them. So the people who don't who reject the idea that maybe we're having climate man caused human caused climate change uh, say well you know the ice age the, the there was a heat wave back I don't know twenty thousand years ago and uh, the ice a lot of the ice melted and we've always had uh, evidence of big climate change before humans mm -hmm. so why isn't this just a non human caused climate change now. It's happening much faster 
and beyond the bounds of which it normally would happen, at least in recent Earth's history. I mean, we haven't had heat increasing this fast in tens of millions of years. Um, what generally causes these cycles of temperature, cycles of ice ages versus greenhouse worlds and so on, is the irregularities of the spin of the Earth, on one hand, the um, wobble in the Earth's axis, and the the fact that the orbit of the Earth around the Sun is not circular. It's a, 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 a elliptical, mm -hmm. and that ellipse changes shape over time. Mm -hmm. And so some of these factors are cooling, some of them are warming. If you just happen to have the cooling factors hit at the same time, you'll start what are called positive feedback systems that actually cool the Earth and basically move us more towards ice ages. On the other hand, if you have the warming factors all hitting at the same time, it'll move the other direction. Now, the last ice age that we had uh, ended around 16,000 years ago-ish. Depends on where you are and where you were in the world. And so we're here, where we are in Danbury, Connecticut, up till about 16,000 years ago for the previous tens of thousands of years, I'm not sure how many, um, there was a mile-thick layer of ice right here. Hmm. And that ice melted as the climate naturally through these cycles in the geophysics of the Earth called Milankovitch cycles, um, all kicked in and caused that warming. Now, that warming then not only melted the ice, but it hit us just at the right time when we were socially and intellectually able to do things like domesticate plants and animals, which allowed for human civilization to sprout up, and here we are. So one thing that should be remembered is that the Earth is four point, what are we, 4.5 billion years old, something like that, give or take. Um, the hum, uh, there's only been animal life on the Earth for 360 million years or so. There have only been uh, humans on Earth in our anatomically modern form for 250,000 years, and we've only had dogs and tomatoes and uh, agriculture for about 10,000. So we are children of the Ice Age, and we are newcomers here. Mm -hmm. And how uh, have you seen any research that would indicate it can be reversed and that we can <clears throat> save ourselves from catastrophe? Well, what we have here is the climate systems uh, are, have a lot of momentum. Once they get moving, they're like a big sailing ship, a big steamship on the ocean. Once a big steamship starts moving, it takes a lot of time and energy to either stop it, slow it down, stop it, or change its direction. And so the longer we, we wait, and we've waited an awful long time, uh, well, relatively speaking, the harder this steamship is going to be to stop. Right now, it looks like it's gonna be very difficult to, eliminate, to limit the total amount of temperature increase under two degrees Celsius. The scientists 
and um, politicians around the world agreed that that was a target we would shoot for, limiting the total amount of temperature increase since the Industrial Revolution to 2 degrees Celsius. It doesn't sound like very much, but it is when you look at <clears throat> all the effects that heat has. Um, in fact, the Paris Agreement was built on that, along that target with the hope that we could keep it at 1.5 degrees. We just blew right past that baby though. And uh, two degrees is something that we're gonna have an awfully hard time to, um, to limit at. What we have to do is A, drastically decarbonize the world. And that's not gonna be easy, think about it. If we're going to, I mean, imagine turning off our cars tonight and never turning them back on never firing up the oil or gas furnace to heat your house. Imagine that. Mm. Um, of course, you'd save on money, but you'd also, you know, it would be a very uncomfortable thing. And all the food and goods that we purchase and we buy for ourselves and our children, our spouses and whatnot, are all shipped in using fossil fuels. And so... The likelihood that we're going to all turn off our keys and never turn them back on again is pretty close to zero. What we need to do, though, is very radically shift our energy supplies from fossil fuels, which are not sustainable in any case, to sustainable fuels or sustainable energies like solar, like wind, nuclear. There's problems there, too. And um, I'm not sure that that's a long-term answer, but we're also going to have to learn to consume less. That's going to be the hard thing. We need to learn to have fewer, short, uh, smaller meals. I could do with that. Um, smaller houses, smaller vehicles, smaller families. Hmm. One of the best things that one could do to decrease one's carbon footprint, meaning the amount of carbon per, uh, released through their life cycle is have fewer kids. Hmm. I'm not saying have none, mm -hmm. but having fewer of them. That's going to be hard for some people to wrap their brain around. I hadn't heard about that either. Yeah, that's, that's actually a, a brand new, that's a relatively new paper, and I haven't read it thoroughly, but that's definitely the, the gist of it. Because um, children are grow up to be consumers and are consumers right. all their lives. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. And so we have to we have to shift to sustainability because the truth of it is, and this is a truism, anything that's not sustainable will fall, will fail eventually. I mean it has to. That by definition, that's what the world sustainable word sustainable means is something that we can keep on doing into the foreseeable future. And fossil fuels isn't one of those. Even if we were just burning through the stuff as fast as we could dig it up, which is almost what we're doing, we're going to run out mm -hmm. sooner than people think, probably. And uh, I think one of the things that people have trouble wrapping their heads, heads around is that we've been doing this for a long time, and, um, you know, why can't we keep doing it? And I expect that the answer is that the earth and its climate is a closed system, hmm. right? We pour the stuff into it and it uh, stays around. Yeah, I mean, well, it will gradually, gr gradually, uh, you know, 
the Carboniferous or something like it will come around again and big swampy forest will cover the earth and new coal will be laid down. But do we all want to wait around for hundreds of millions of years for that to happen? I don't think that's practical. One thing we could do, and one thing we'll need to do eventually, although we don't really know how to do it yet, is figure out how to take the carbon back out of the atmosphere. Now, we have certain things we can do. We can plant more trees. That's, that's a good start. But there's no way the trees are going to keep up with what we're putting into the atmosphere right now. And so industrial methods in some fashion, there's been, ex there's been research examining that. And, you know, that has to be done uh, because if we overshoot 2 degrees Celsius, that's the only way we're going to get back to 12, 2 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. How about lawns? Does that help too? Lawns? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that it'd be better if you, if you let your lawn either grow back to forest or turn it into a big vegetable garden. Hmm. And uh, the things you're talking about are very, uh, um, uh, not radical, but they're uh, big, big things. Stop driving our cars. So the idea of uh, everybody in 20 years or 30 years driving electric cars and... Um, shutting down coal plants and converting to uh, natural gas. That doesn't sound like you're saying that's not going to be enough to... Uh... No, it, it'll be necessary, but not sufficient. Hmm. And, and some of it we're going to do anyway, uh, not because we decide to do it, but because it'll be thrust upon us. Hmm. Um, the fossil fuel reserves, that part of the fossil fuel reserves, which is economically um, obtainable, because they all, all not not all of it is that the reserves of the fossil fuels that can be dug up and sold, and so that the energy produced is less than the energy required to get the stuff out of the ground and refine it. That stuff is going to be gone in actually fairly short order. I've seen I can't I can't tell you how how long, but it's in a matter of decades, not centuries. Mm. Even with fracking, yeah. Yeah. Well, fracking has its own problems, too. Oklahoma's getting earthquakes now, which it never did before. And, and there's all sorts of other problems. Uh, the natural gas, which is mostly methane, a greenhouse, very strong greenhouse gas that is obtained by fracking, um, is a cleaner, lower carbon fuel than heating oil and gasoline and coal, for God's sakes. But it is still... A fossil fuel that's still old ancient 300 million year old carbon or so that is now being reintroduced into the atmosphere and so it's better but it's not great mm -hmm. and so you know what i we're we're going you know the world has gone through human civilization has gone through three revolutions in the past and i'm not talking about the american revolution or the russian revolution i'm talking about revolutions where the lives of everyday people were changed profoundly, and it remained that way for a while. One of those revolutions is what's called the Neolithic Re Revolution by anthropologists. It's the development of agriculture. So the people transitioned gradually from hunters and gatherers, where they were you know, chasing big animals with sharp sticks, to um, sedentary people who would grow their own food and domesticate dogs, cats, cows, pigs, chickens, the whole, you know, the whole zoo. 
Um, that fundamentally changed humanity, and it allowed for not everyone to have to be in the food acquisition business all the time so they could become scholars and potters and sandal makers and whatnot, painters and builders and all that sort of stuff. The second of those revolutions is the Industrial Revolution, where previous to the Industrial Revolution, all the energy used by humanity was muscle power um, or wood, okay, or peat or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, where you know the oxen pull the, you know, pull the plow, or maybe you know, maybe a family member pull, pull the plow when you didn't didn't have an oxen. And so that sort of economy, that sort of energy, that sort of civilization is something you call carbon neutral because it did not increase significantly the amount of carbon cycling in the biosphere. Well, with the Industrial Revolution, as we were talking about, this stuff was dug up and burnt at large amounts to fuel heat water, to run engines, to make cloth and later other things smelt iron and all the things that we associate with modern civilization and that fundamentally changed life for people on the planet you could get high quality cloth to make comfortable clothes with you could um, you know take a train you know from point a to point b at you know amazingly fast 15 miles an hour at first and so on, and it just changed people's lives incredibly. Um, now, what we're faced is we're going to have to have another revolution. And again, I'm not talking about overthrow of, of governments. I'm talking about the sustainability revolution where we switch from non-sustainable energy sources, which will eventually cause the fall of human civilization, truly, uh, to something that we can continue to use and into the future. Mm-hmm. Not that there won't be other things that have to be changed as well. But we're, we're faced with that. We've got to do it. We've been putting an awful long time. And as someone who studied this, how optimistic are you that this can happen in time? Well, there's going to be changes in, in global civilization no, no matter because it's not only climate change is going on, but it's also um, the human population. We have 7.5 billion people on the planet. One of the things about the Industrial Revolution is that it allowed a lot more people to survive because we had industrial mechanisms for producing food and you know people could heat their homes more efficiently and things like that. And so... Develop, gradually developed, you know, modern medicine with, you know, with antibiotics and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> the human population increased, well, exponentially. I mean, I, and, I, and I, I don't mean that metaphorically. It mm-hmm. is truly ex, has been exponential growth. It's, you know, we're been, we've been increasing in number like bacteria do in a Petri dish, only we're very much longer or larger. And um, it's a important point in ecology that when a population increases its demands for food and water and air and space and the ability of the environment to clean up after the animals process wastes and 
reprocess the CO2 into photosynthetic material and things like that will um, will need to uh, be able to absorb all the waste products and produce all the food necessary for that population or bad things start to happen okay the maximum population size that can be supported by a environment in terms of ability to feed and water and oxygenate and absorb the waste products um, taken taken all together is something called a carrying capacity and it is the maximum population that's sustainable long term mm -hmm. okay if a population overshoots a carrying capacity which does happen what happens is the stress on that population reaches a point where they're not able to reproduce as quickly, they're not getting enough to eat because there isn't as much to eat because all those extra organisms in that population are degrading the carrying capacity faster than otherwise. And eventually the population of the organisms will decrease through natural causes, you know, meaning starvation, disease, war, whatever, to the point where it then at some point meets, meets the now lower carrying capacity. And then an equilibrium and a, st a stable situation can be maintained. Well, that's happening with us now. We, um, we blasted through our, our carrying capacity in 1970. This year, we used up our year's quota. We, as a global civilization, used up our, our year's quota of food, sustainable, uh, that we could sustain, and ecosystem processes, like cleaning up our waste, on August 2nd, which means that we're between 40 and 50% overshot. Now... The laws, the rules of ecology that work with mice in a meadow work, and bacteria in a petri dish also work with us. We are organisms after all. Ecology applies to us. So you can see where we're going with this is we've overshot our, our carrying capacity. And at the same time, climate change is decreasing our carrying capacity. So we have the decrease in the number of people that can safely be maintained due to the fact that we've got too many people eating too many resources. And then we also have the degradation of the environment caused by climate change. And things are going to get tough at some point. We are, in fact, living fat by stealing from our grandchildren, to put it bluntly. And there's no other way to put it. And there's and this is unambiguous. This is basic ecology that you'd learn as a sophomore in college. Mm -hmm. So you're on the pessimistic side. Well, there's going to be some bad times ahead. I don't think it's the end, end for us because we're also fairly clever. And we're able to, when put to it, when faced with the obvious, we're able to deal with it in some degree. And it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be some rough times. After all, 
if you hit the, heat the atmosphere, you heat the ocean. If you heat the ocean, hot water takes up more space than cold water does, and sea level is going to rise from that. If you warm the water, you're going to melt the ice. That extra ice is going to contribute to sea, um, sea level rise. If you melted Greenland, which is almost a certainty in a few centuries, and Western Antarctica, leaving Eastern Antarctica, the larger chunk of ice intact, we're talking about a 50-meter sea level rise. Hmm. Okay, So we're talking about a retreat from the coast. Now, I, you know, I don't, I don't take any glee in describing this stuff, but, it, you know, there really isn't any doubt among scientists to study this that this is what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and what, what that means is that don't buy a speculative resor uh, resource, I mean, uh, real estate in, in Miami Beach, Florida, or New Orleans, or Atlantic City, mm -hmm. or Lower Manhattan, or, you know... Did your daughter know this before she decided to have a baby? <laughs> We've actually, t I've, I've talked to her a fair bit. And I, you know, I didn't say, and I wouldn't say, never say, have no children. Because, you know, we need to have hope. And what's, what is better a symbol of hope than your first grandchild? Um, you know, I do worry. I hope that... And it's none of my business. I'm not going to tell them what to do. I couldn't anyway. These are hard-headed girls. Um, I would hope that they would have fewer rather than more mm -hmm. children or, or adopt. Um, but that'll be up to them. Mm -hmm. But they, they've heard me go on about this stuff. How about when you go out and you've done several lectures around... Danbury, in Danbury, about climate change, you're I've a sought-after. i 15 since the 1st of January. Yeah, you're a sought-after speaker. Yeah, apparently. So what do people, like when you go to the Danbury Men's Club, mm. what are the, what's the reaction? Well, you know, in the, I've, I've, I've actually spoken on this topic to them twice. Mm -hmm. The first time, a couple of gentlemen at the end asked questions, obviously primed by something they heard on, on television. They were good-natured about asking questions. This time, I, I framed the question, the, the topic going in, with the whole notion of consilience. All those different, um, all those different lines of evidence that all point in the same direction. And I find now this works in Connecticut. It may not work in Oklahoma, where my dad lives. That framing it in that way nip some of the questions at the bud and I'm I have no trouble with questions I have no trouble telling them I don't know the answer mm -hmm. you know it's only a fool who will pretend to know things they don't know mm -hmm. and you know but we we don't need fools right now that's not meant to be a political statement but I suppose it is you know I obviously there were some Trump stickers on the cars in the parking lot so I suspected that there are people who were not happy to hear what I had to say but none of them argued Mm -hmm. And all my time doing this, the only person I had argue, heckle, the only troll I had was a fellow at the very first talk I gave in 2008. And he's someone who had a lot of time on his hands and dug up some stuff which made perfect sense to him on the internet, and it didn't make any sense really. But Damn, Things have changed since 2008 now, too. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and generational change. I, you know... 
I have, I'm, I'm a college professor, so I'm around millennials and whatever comes after millennials. Um, and I have been professionally all the time, and I think that they're going to save us mm -hmm. if we are to be saved. Mm -hmm. They have a flexibility of thinking about the world that perhaps people my generation didn't have. They don't necessarily think that they have to have a more affluent life than their parents did. After all, they may be living in their parents' basement at this point because who can afford who can afford to buy a house when you're 20? Weren't you a hippie though? I thought hippies mm. were supposed to be uh, the you know we always think of ourselves <laughs> these uh, ex hippies as the uh, free mm. thinkers and the uh, big picture people. I wanted to be a hippie. I was kind of young. I was I at the time of Woodstock. I was 10 years old, mm. so I didn't even wasn't even aware of it um, until long after. Um, and I, I really wanted to be a hippie, but I was too young to be a participant. Hmm. You know, I have to say that I one of the things, one of the bits of satisfaction I'm getting now is being able to express myself in ways that perhaps were common in the late 60s now in a constructive way. In April, uh, my wife and I first went down for the March of Science in, in New Haven. Um, which was a lot of fun, uh, a whole bunch of science and nerdy introverts, science introverts uh, from Yale and Southern, and there were several of us from Western's, uh, <clears throat> from Western's biology department there. And my wife and the, my daughter lives in New Haven. We all marched. And there was someone trying to lead us in cheers. Have you ever taken a bunch of introverts and tried to lead them in cheers? No, I haven't. It's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> we weren't very good at that. We were good at marching, and we could, you know, bore you to death, but leading cheers just wasn't quite our gig. Our gig. And then um, the next weekend, we went down to the uh, People's March for, for uh, Climate in Washington, D.C., mm. where we marched with 200,000 of our newest best friends. Actually, you aren't much of an introvert anymore. You are. Uh, you led our uh, solar eclipse mm. celebration, and uh, you speak a lot on campus and off campus. And you're one of the more well-known people here on mm. campus, right? Have well, you... I, I guess so. I don't. I I I like um, explaining science to people, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons I'm in this business. I like explaining science to the general public. It's a complicated material science is to be able to explain a complicated topic in a simple way without dumbing it down without being condescending in any way is an art form mm -hmm. not everyone can do it not everyone on academic i know can do it but it's something that for whatever reason i seem to be able to do and i enjoy it i find it greatly satisfying um, for instance we have like i said we I, I get asked to do lots of climate talks and at everything from local synagogues to the Danbury Gardens Club and, and public libraries and, and on and on. <clears throat> and um, for schools when they're doing their science fairs and all that. Happy to, absolutely delighted to do it because it's something I can do. Right. I can't levitate the Pentagon, going back to hippie things. I, I can't, you know, I can't... Um, talk Scott Pruitt into, you know, reversing course in the EPA. He wouldn't listen to me anyway. 
and I mean, I'm 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 not a, a well-known scientist outside of, you know, this little part of Fairfield County, um, but this is something I can do, mm-hmm. and I need to do something because we're going to have that grandson that we've been talking about. That's right. Is do you think that uh, the seed of your ability to uh, talk to people and explain things in a non-condescending way comes from your uh, childhood, your roots out in the Midwest? And the do you consider Missouri the Midwest? Mm, I, yeah, I guess it's the Midwest. Yeah, it's Midwest. Uh, it's I grew up down the Ozarks, so hmm. you know, I halfway consider myself a hillbilly. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I mean, who knows? I have, I have teachers in my in my uh, background. I mean, my grandmother, who was from Cooter, Missouri, no joke. Wow, uh, <laughs> named after a turtle. Um, you know, she graduated from college when she was fifty-two and was a was a, um, a high school English teacher for the rest of her career. And as a young child, she would read me from Hamilton's, Edith Hamilton's uh, mythology, hmm. which gave me an appreciation for those stories, too. Um, I don't know. Empathy has a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. You can't do this properly if you're not, if you don't have some degree of empathy, because you're explaining something that's going to be bad that's going to happen to people. And you need to be able to do it in such a way that, you know, they're not you don't want your audience to leave crying. Mm-hmm. So you have to That's give right. them hope. You have to, I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to blow smoke. You don't want to, to give them a false sense of everything's going to be fine. Kumbaya and all that stuff. It's not unicorns. This is the most important thing that it's happened in human civilization since that ice age melted and we're gonna have to deal with it mm-hmm. and we will in some fashion we can do it the easy way or the hard way it's like you know i don't know if your mother was like my mother if you you were doing something you weren't supposed to do and 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 your mom said you know we can do this the easy way or we can do it the hard way i don't know if you ever had that experience mm-hmm. i did and um, i think a lot of kids do at some point and that's true that's a life lesson that you know um the world isn't going to fix itself. Well, I mean, it will gradually, but we won't be around for mm-hmm. it. Um, I would rather be around for it. And so I'm going to do everything I can going forward for as long as I'm around. So is that uh, why you're doing this now? Because of the uh, uh, greatness of it, the importance of it. I mean, you started your uh, biology career studying leaf litter, if I'm uh, correct. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, I got, I'm an ecologist. That's my field. And um, ecologists that study the big picture ecology, ecosystems and whatnot, are an advantage in wrapping our brains around climate change. And we're an advantage in being able to, under, to understand it and explain it, partly because the big end of ecology is um, includes a lot of things that aren't strictly biology. There's a lot of climatology in it. You know, the, the difference between the eastern deciduous forests that we have in Bethel, where I live, 
and um, the rainforest in Brazil is climate. It's not, you know, it's not, well, it's, it's climate. And so climate's important as one of the main factors that determine what grows where. And so for those of us like me who grew up or grew up or grew up in science, were trained in the big end of ecology, um, we kind of have the big picture and we can integrate biology and um, earth science and so on. I have the advantage in that I'm at heart a liberal arts guy. You know, I'm not the kind of person who would have been happy in a laboratory or in the field just studying science and only science, nothing but science forever. I like literature and I like history and I like anthropology and archaeology and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I like looking at connections to it and, and wrapping it all up into one big story. That gives me um, an advantage in doing what I do because that's exactly what's required at this time to talk about climate change because it's not just biology, it's not just earth science, it's not just one thing, it's, you know, where did it come from in history? And I don't claim to be a, a, a you know, professionally trained historian or anthropologist or any of that stuff, but I, I know enough that I can, I can combine it into the story, mm -hmm. which I find interesting. Mm -hmm. I find it amazingly interesting. And so it's just I've been I've been fortunate in that um, what I what needs to be done is something that I can do so I do it. Mm -hmm. And the uh, having that big picture um, includes <clears throat> politics and government. <laughs> and, uh... Well, it's all certainly influenced by that. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, the some of the big some of the big decisions that will have to be made, and some of the big efforts that will that we'll need are things that can only be done on the large scale of human civilization. Mm -hmm. I can do things in my own backyard and I should do things in my own backyard, but that's a small scale and we need to scale up. Mm -hmm. And that means that on the local level, on the state level, on the national level, we need to make our voices heard and make sure that, you know, that decisions are made that are going to be in the benefit of those grandbabies because mm -hmm. it doesn't and nothing else matters right now right there's nothing about there's nothing like having that child coming in a few months to put a sharp point on it i'm 58 years old i'm be around for a while yet but you know right no it's <laughs> all gonna be on him yeah pretty soon yeah and then it'll be my job to soften the blow and try to train him to be able to deal with it as best I can as a grandfather. Mm -hmm. And luckily I have uh, a daughter and son-in-law who are, are good folks. Yeah, so. You don't want the grandson to be blaming you for this mess he's got. <laughs> well, so. he may, he may, he may blame my generation, but, and, and, and that is not necessarily wrong because we have, been we've led the charge in consumption it's not just it's not just fossil fuels it's the desire to consume consume and buy stuff and throw things away disposable and and all this sort of stuff that 
it's convenient for us, but it has increased our the rate at which we're burning through our carrying capacity. And it's leaving us with a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't do us any good and does us harm instead. This generation started out so hopefully and uh, <laughs> you know, happy. How did this all happen, mm, man? Too much, too much LSD, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't do that. I'm not sure you didn't either. <laughs> I was too young. Yes, that's right. Me too. I have just one other question. Mm. Uh, am I allowed to call you a hillbilly or is that no, uh, rude? No, no. Well, I mean, I don't think it's rude. Huh. Because, I mean, my, I, on my mother's side... There are hillbillies and Okies all the way back. Mm -hmm. My grandfather was born in Hontubby, Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm making this up. And his uh, brothers, Thurbert and Cecil, <laughs> were Dust Bowl Okies and ended up in wow. California. Mm. Are, are, are their families still Cecil. there? Uh, I, suppose, I, suppose, I suppose so. I yeah. haven't really had any contact with him in a long time. I knew my great uncle Cecil. In fact, he's the one that taught me to dip my breakfast sausage in the maple syrup <laughs> before eating it. Um, I did not sure I ever met Thurbert or Sister Rushi or the rest of the crowd. But, wow, I've never even heard of those names. Yeah. Uh, you didn't, you weren't raised in the Ozarks. Yeah. And my father's family are all from Kansas City area. They're uh, farmers from Kansas City. Yeah, that's mm. interesting. <laughs> Well, thanks, Mitch. I want to also thank our producers, Scott Volpe and Pete Puccio, who make this podcast available to the entire universe. <laughs> if you like what you've heard, please subscribe at WCSU Media on iTunes or SoundCloud so you can stay up to date with all editions of WCSU 411. Please leave a comment or a review and tell your friends all about it. Tell them to tune in to learn more about Western Connecticut State University and the people here like Dr. Mitch Wagner. Thanks, Mitch. Thank you for inviting me. 